Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we take a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in for Emma Ashford one more time while she's out on maternity leave is John Glazer. Hi, John. Hi, Trevor. To many of us, the fact that the Trump administration and Congress managed to find time to nail down the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal and and a phase one deal with uh, China was a little surprising. Um, But it seems like a good time to talk about what these agreements mean, uh, both from an economic perspective as well as a broader foreign policy perspective. And here to help us break it down is Dan Eikenson, uh, director of the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Trevor and John. Good to have you on the show. So let's just jump in and and we'll you know tag tack back and forth between agreements as as the you know feeling strikes. But let, let's let's start with Usmaka. Can I call it that? Because um, <laughs> yeah. I just love yeah. that. NAFTA was okay, but Usmaka is a superior acronym. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's 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 talk smack about Usmaka. How, how are you liking it? Well, NAFTA it was easier to pronounce because it had free trade in it. Uh, Usmaka has no mention of free or trade, and there's a reason for that. It is really the first U.S. trade agreement that has no new trade liberalization. Just like the NAFTA, uh, almost all goods trade between the three countries will remain duty-free. There were some provisions that modernized the agreement. Uh, In 1994, when NAFTA went into effect, the internet didn't really exist. Digital commerce wasn't a thing. And so we didn't have rules that would restrain governments from taxing digital transactions, forcing localization of data storage and things like that. So in that sense, it modernized the agreement. There are a couple of small details that sort of bring it up to snuff uh, in terms of where we are globally with our the other agreements. But by and large, and the reason that this agreement won the support of Democrats is that it's an agreement that doesn't liberalize trade. It It restricts trade. The objective of this agreement was to compel US companies to continue investing in the United States to deter them from investing in Mexico, to deter them from importing from Mexico. So there are a lot of new provisions built into this that were on the Christmas list of uh, the AFL-CIO for a very long time. So, uh, and unfortunately, the Congress seems, uh, the, the House seems willing to pass this thing as early as tomorrow. The Senate will have to wait a little bit, but typically Republicans would push back when you when you think of the old paradigm of anti-trade Democrats, pro-trade Republicans, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, This is Trump's Republican Party. The GOP Senate is going to fall in line behind him. So the concessions that were made, the concessions that Republicans stood to defend, the issues that they stood to defend in the the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation have fallen by the wayside and they're not pushing back at all. They want to get this deal done. And I think it will pass and become law. You know, it won't be that dramatically uh, impeding, I think, uh, but it certainly makes it easier for um, for U.S. labor unions to push grudges, to push um, assertions that there are violations in certain factories. And what that does is it probably will deter investment in those factories. Um, the rules of origin are also very uh, onerous, raises the cost of complying to, to have duty-free access to, to the market. So, uh, We'll see what happens from this. I would not call it trade liberalization. In fact, we haven't had a trade agreement uh, worked out since the George W. Bush administration. You know, it's Trump, you know, reminds me more of a 1980 Democrat than a Republican of any era. But I I guess, you know, the new the new 
you know, order of battle is that there are no free traders in DC anymore. It seems it's depressing. I guess the question is though, will that have a lasting impact on the Republican Party or do you think that to some extent they'll kind of snap back if Trump has one term, they'll start to find their free trade uh, gusto again? Their bona fides, yeah. if they ever had them. I don't know. I mean, the the, the name to many is, is sullied and uh, I was hopeful of the idea that somebody would start to appeal to the center in the sense that uh, labor is opposed to trade liberalization, the economic nationalists are opposed to trade liberalization. But what about the business community? What about you know the, the, the broader you know central centrist concerns in the United States that see trade as beneficial, not from a personal liberty perspective like we do, but uh, because you know, why have taxes? Uh, but the Democrats didn't make a play for the center. They stayed. They they wanted to out protectionism Trump. And I think the, the presidential candidates are all in, uh, in, in, in that boat. And uh, I, I, will ho I hope that the next administration or the one after that will recognize the benefits that the TPP actually provided relative to this. Uh, it's basically the, the same terms, except it's with uh, ten other, nine other countries. Talking about seven point five uh, uh, tr trillion dollars more in, in GDP, many more people involved, uh, and it does have some, I think, beneficial foreign policy um, objectives. Not you know checked off there as well. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned TPP, and that makes me think of China. Uh, I think the other, you know, outside of this hemisphere, the other big trade deal that the president wants to get is one with China. Um, but before we get into the details of that, just broadly, what is the nature of the threat to national security from trade with China? Trade with China, I don't think presents much of a threat. Um, I, I think the concern that has materialized and for which there is you know, fairly broad bipartisan concern uh, is that the United States and China are in this race for technological preeminence. And uh, China has been engaged in a variety of practices that uh, have, are, that many believe are unfair or predatory, forcing technology transfer, stealing intellectual property, cyber intrusions, and, and in, investing heavily, subsidizing very heavily technology companies and, and innovation. Um, and, you know, this has been, this has been building for, for, for a number of years. I think had Hillary Clinton won the presidency, she would be trying to do something about it as well. During the Obama administration, I know the the intelligence community and the security community was gearing up for um, for ways to sort of limit Chinese access to U.S. technology by you know I I impeding or, or, or scrutinizing very closely potential acquisitions and and exports. Um, and and Hillary Clinton probably wanted to bring a case to the World Trade Organization with our trading partners who have the same concerns about Chinese sort of techno-mercantilism. But, but Trump comes in and just conflates all of the issues, bilateral trade deficits, you know, currency, access to, to, to the Chinese market, which has been you know, pretty good for the most part. And so the US launches this case under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, which gives the president the authority to levy tariffs in response to unfair practices abroad. The problem with all of that is that 
we sort of agreed when we joined the World Trade Organization in 1995 that we wouldn't be judge, jury, and executioner. We would find these problems, perhaps, and then bring them to the WTO for adjudication. But, but Trump acted unilaterally, and he has conflated the issues. I think the trade-related issues are not that significant, but and even if the Chinese ultimately are to agree to all of the terms that the that the Trump administration has been pushing. We still have the fact that we are in this race for technological preeminence, where um, um, innovating and you know there, where there are a lot of first mover advantages to um, to discovering in, in commercial innovations, and so I, I think it's going to be hard to compel the Chinese to agree to not try to leapfrog us, and it's going to be hard to compel the United States to not try to kneecap the Chinese. So we're going to have to think of this in terms of. You know, some sort of a treaty negotiation, like an arms treaty or something, rather than a trade agreement. And in fact, this turned into a trade agreement. This phase one trade agreement deals uh, compels China to do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the original complaint. It just kind of morphed into this big thing. And anyway, I think it's a good thing that they reached this agreement. Whether it holds or not remains to be seen. But at least it uh, sort of um, curtails. Uh, escalation of the of the tariff war in the short term. I, I want to talk more about the the devils and the details there on the China deal in a second, but I, I just want to step back for a minute because I'm I'm a skeptic on this question of the race for technological supremacy on sort of I think multiple grounds. I you know first the idea that a country has to be number one in any given technology to be fat rich and happy it seems to me patently false. Ask Switzerland and Scandinavia how it feels to not be number one. Pretty damn good, evidently. Um, happy, rich, doing great. Um, they benefit from the fact that other people innovate. They do a good job educating and taking advantage, it seems to me, of, of what other countries are doing. But they're not pushing the boundaries of, of most sciences and, and so on. So I don't really see why you have to be number one. China hasn't been number one, and they seem to be doing really, really well. So I don't really buy it just from that point of view. The second idea is this notion that somehow if China manages to leapfrog us in, oh, I don't know, CRISPR technology or artificial intelligence, that somehow this is America caught with its pants down and we're going to be at the mercy of a coercing superpower bully. But unless their new invention magically means that nuclear weapons no longer work, I really don't see where the fire is there. If the final piece of it then is, okay, well, economically, we'd be better off if we were number one in everything. And, you know, maybe, but like, if are we going to become China in order to compete with China? Just like, that seems like, so what is there, what, what part of that argument do you actually buy is what I'm asking. Dan. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I don't, I agree with you that we don't need to be so concerned about everything and that being number two or number three is not necessarily a bad thing. But the fact is that the United States has been the global hegemon for at least 80 years. And so we feel this challenge in a certain way. And I think we're handicapped by the fact that we have been distracted for two decades in these senseless wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan. We pivot back to look at China and the reaction is uh, overwhelmingly negative. Like, oh, we, we, we need to, to do something about this. It's a very easy thing to demagogue. Uh, I've you know, I've been doing trade policy for a long time and I thought I had a pretty good handle on the US-China relationship from the economic perspective. Nowadays, you need to be a security expert, a technology expert, uh, you know, an intelligence expert, a foreign policy expert. And it turns out that as we consult the people on the security who have security expertise, they're very, very hawkish. Uh, we're, we on the trade side are saying, 
can't we just improve the rules and continue to engage? No, there's a real problem. And the problem is exacerbated by the fact that there's fairly broad bipartisan support for this perspective. And it's an, it's an easy thing to demagogue. And it's also easy because of the nature of the particular regime in Beijing, which is a little different than what Americans were sort of promised when we were started to engage with China. Uh, these guys are uh, surveilling their own people. They're exporting surveillance technology. Is that what it means to be at the technological fore? Um, you know, they're running concentration camps. They're persecuting people, and they have a president for life. So it, it just it, it doesn't take much analysis to just point in sort of caricature form to, to these developments, and it scares Americans. And I think the, the last Pew survey that I saw from a couple of months ago uh, shows a continuing decline in the way Americans perceive not just the Chinese government but the Chinese. Uh, something like a sixty percent unfavorable rating, and so. We we need to inject um, uh, uh, an, an overload of facts into this into this discussion. And I think protecting national security is an important, if not the most important, objective of government. But if we give them too broad a mandate and we don't define it well and don't uh, identify the scalpels in our toolbox, then we're going to overshoot and we're going to create problems that didn't exist. So, when I first read about this phase one. Uh, trade deal with China that was recently announced. Uh, I sort of wrote it off as empty before even looking at the details because the timing seemed rather suspicious to me. I think Trump did not. I think he expected to make more progress towards the deal that he actually wants by this point, and he's got to uh, run a re-election campaign, uh, and so he wanted this kind of short-term deal that didn't really meet any of his objectives. But so so. First of all, do you think that's true? And then secondly, maybe you can flesh out some of the details first. Yeah, sure. Yes. I mean, I think uh, Trump has learned that that uh, trade wars are not good or easy to win. Uh, and I think um, there was a time frame by which he needed to reach a deal in order to start pivoting to the election. And I think, frankly and unfortunately, he, he has a case to make now. Uh, I think it's good that that the likelihood of escalation is now very limited, at least between now and the, the election. Uh, what happened with this phase one deal is that uh, new tariffs that were scheduled to go into effect on about $160 billion worth of goods have been canceled. An increase in tariffs on $250 billion of goods from 25% to 30% has been terminated, so it's still at 25 uh, And then there's $110 billion worth of goods where the tariffs went from 15% to 7.5%. So, um, we still have tariffs on more than half of the goods that we're importing from China. So if that's your big concern, and it is a concern, then you're not satisfied with this deal. But I would say, look, uh, at least we don't have to worry about prop, uh, tariffs on all imports from China now. Uh, at least it gives us a little bit of certainty, even though it's not a better certainty than we had. Um, on other things, the Chinese have agreed to purchase uh, an increase of $200 billion of US goods and services over the next two years from a baseline of 2017. So we sold about $185 billion worth of goods and services to China in 2017. So it's supposed to go by over 100% over the course of two years, which is about a 45% increase, annual increase, which to most of us seems impossible. Uh, where, where is the demand going to come from? Uh, are U.S. exporters going to just ramp up prices dramatically to meet that? And 
if a lot of these purchases are in the agricultural sector, at whose expense does it come? Brazil's, Canada's, or other trading partners, they're going to be upset about it. And their uh, businesses and their consumers are going to have fewer dollars to buy our exports with. So we may export more to China, but we'll end up exporting less elsewhere. And you know there could be a case brought to the WTO complaints. And I think China does not want to violate the, the WTO. Right now, the United States has launched its assault on the WTO. It's kind of assumed this role of international scofflaw in that regard. And China wants to play its cards right to say, hey, we're, we're up, upholding this system. And so they want to play by the rules. So anyway, um, it's- it, uh, It's almost like our entire approach does violence to basic economics. This, uh, the assumptions at the core of the Trump administration yeah. are just uh, absurd. They don't understand why we trade. We trade so that we can specialize. We specialize so we can produce more. We produce more so we can consume and save more. Uh, they seem to think it's a zero-sum game. But, but, but just, to, just one last point on that. We have been arguing for years that trade is mutually beneficial, and you know, it's, it's since 1776 that's been pretty firm. Uh, but the problem is that's being thrown back in our face now. It's like, well, if it's mutually beneficial, should we be engaging in trade with a, with the regime that is committed to ideals that we disagree with? And uh, we used to say, well, you know, it, it trade benefits the Chinese people; it gives them a power source to to challenge the authorities. Uh, with the after the economic liberties, the civil and political liberties will come. I'm not sure that that's materialized to our liking uh, in, in, in China yet. So, the, we have to think more carefully uh, about this, and um, and but recognize that in addition to the sticks, there are lots of carrots that we can choose from. Yeah, I, so. A few months ago, a big buzzword in town was decoupling, and this idea that if you know you get too far down the road trade warring with China, that you're going to end up doing kind of permanent damage to the U.S.-Chinese economic relationship, sort of thereby like permanently really depressing, you know, sizing growth opportunities for both countries, but then of course for the rest of the world. Um, but that talk seems to have died down a little bit as this deal starts to emerge. What, what's your take on on where we're at with this debate? Yeah, um, I think a lot of people are turned off by the discussion because it, it goes sort of hand in hand with this Cold War metaphor. Um, you know, when you talk about oh, the United States and China are going to descend into a Cold War, people start getting you know this imagery of of nuclear missiles and and warhead buildup, and I, I think. The Cold War metaphor is apt when it comes to the United States and China trying to win the hearts and minds of other countries and doing favors for them or threatening to punish them the way the United States and Soviet Union did. And I think that that is uh, still possible. The, the phase one deal does nothing, I think, to sort of nip in the bud concerns about decoupling. I think the Chinese have started thinking about alternative supply chains for their for their technology machine. Uh, they're very reliant on US semiconductors. Now they're uh, subsidizing uh, uh, d indigenous innovation in semiconductor production. They are concerned about the leverage the United States has over the global financial system as you know, most transactions in the world are conducted in dollars and we have to, Americans are in charge of the system that clears that. You know, that's how we're punishing the Iranians with the, uh, or extraterritorially, anybody that wants to do business with the Iranians. Uh, the Chinese see that, and I think that they're looking to explore new architecture in the financial world um, to to have more transactions done in yuan, and to work with other countries who want to 
sort of circumvent these this U.S. leverage. So, um, you know, I, I think that we're not going to be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube. That's not necessarily a bad thing if all countries are thinking about ways to diversify against risk. It, you know, it could lead to a better outcome, but I think in the short run, the disruptions will be pretty costly and the gyrations could lead to alliances that we didn't exist, didn't expect to exist and to outcomes that, that could, you know, hamstring us for a long time. Right. Speaking of, speaking of that, tell us a little bit about what what the heck the U.S.'s position on the WTO is because this is I'm a, this is a head scratcher for me. I, we built it, we loved it, and now we hate it. Yeah, I don't what. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is uh, this is this is an issue near and dear to the heart of the Center for Trade Policy Studies. Here, you know, we have a couple of people working with us who've uh, worked at the WTO, and you know, the WTO. Well, th those of us at Cato and around the world who believe in free trade believe in free trade, but we also believe in the rule of law. And I think the trading system works better when there are rules. And uh, since the end of the Second World War, the creation of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947, uh, which um, you know demonstrated that countries' uh, economic benefits can uh, be secured uh, uh, simultaneously, uh, and that trade is good to reduce tensions among nations evolved into this World Trade Organization where there was um, adjudication of disputes. And uh, and I think Robert Lighthizer, the USTR, has a bad taste in his mouth with respect to the WTO because he's a trade lawyer, a former representative of steel interests and the US trade remedy laws like anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, which the United States uh, runs in a way that violates the anti-dumping uh, provisions of the anti-dumping agreement, the countervailing duty agreement. Um, and he's unhappy. He thinks that there's been overreach from the WTO, from the appellate body, and uh, doesn't thinks that the United States should have the sovereignty to, to sort of do what it wants. And, and this stems from this view that the United States is this benevolent giant that emerged after the Second World War. We provided funding for rebuilding Europe under the Marshall Plan, a nuclear umbrella that, you know, reduced defense expenditures for all these countries so they could build up their social welfare systems and rebuild industry to compete with us. And wow, we did all these things when we could have subjugated these people and, and you know, been like, like pre previous hegemons, you know, uh, just ruled uh, the way we wanted to. As though there were no benefits to the United States in doing that, as though resisting Soviet expansionism uh, was, or, or rebuilding Europe weren't uh, uh, goals that were in our interests. Now, they're thinking those rules uh, are, are, have hamstrung us, and we're the world's largest economy. We depend less on trade than the rest of the world. We, we're going to start throwing our weight around. And so, that is the impetus for the assault on the WTO's appellate body. Uh, I would say that the administration has raised some legitimate concerns. The WTO has not been perfect. Uh, it, it doesn't deserve to be uh, to be bulldozed, uh, but it, it could warrant, it could use some reforms. And so they've, they've shown a spotlight on some of the issues where reform is going to be needed. Whether or not the United States is going to commit to that remains to be seen. So just today we had a, a, a kind of a new development. So the appellate body is no longer functioning. As of December 10th, there's only one judge, one member of the appellate body. There's supposed to be a stable of seven. You need a quorum of three to adjudicate any of these matters. There's only one. So a panel report came out that found against the United States 
and the United States decided to appeal. So it's appealed to an appellate body that doesn't exist. And so it's, you know, in, into the void right now and we'll see what this brings and what kind of resolutions pop up. But whether or not the United States wants to support the WTO uh, will be uh, will become more clear over the next year and into the next administration if there's a new president. Congress has not been very outspoken about uh, protecting and preserving the WTO until last week. There were some uh, some members of the uh, uh, of the Ways and Means Committee who expressed their support and hopes that the United States would uh, return to supporting the WTO at some point. I'm kind of curious to step back from. Uh, the politics of the day and just ask you really broadly, if you're the trade representative, what ideally would be your general approach on trade? Is it as simple as we maintain a preference for lowering our own tariffs and potentially incentivizing others to do so? I mean, how do you describe your ideal trade mm -hmm. policy? Well, it's funny because uh, if you're a free trader like I am, you you believe that your barriers are, are Im impediments to your own economy. And so you'd want to get rid of all your trade barriers. Well, U US tariffs on goods are pretty low, an average of about 2% or so. Uh, well, that's you know pre-trade war. Uh, they're a little slightly higher now. Um, but where we've not focused at all is on services. Um, Americans consume far more services than goods. I think uh, in 2017, about 55% of US, uh, uh, of the goods consumed by Americans were imported. But we consume twice as many services, something like $9 uh, trillion worth of services um, that, uh, um, but only 550 billion of it was imported, something like five or six percent. That's because we have barriers to competition in transportation, in legal services, in healthcare, in education. We need to open open that up. So if I were uh, the trade representative, again, I have to take one step back. We have trade representatives and we have trade negotiations. For what reason? I mean, this it's 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 a system that we call sort of mercantilist reciprocity. You know, it, it assumes that import barriers are negotiating chits and assets, and will only get rid of them if others do the same. When in fact, uh, it doesn't really have that value at all. We should just do this by ourselves uh, unilaterally. But since there's not much of an appetite for that. Uh, and if I were to hew to this mercantilist model of mercantilist reciprocity, I would focus on services liberalization and opening our markets. Certainly, U.S. services providers uh, would benefit from that as well, because the, in many areas, the, the the world's best in many industries. So, I would focus on that. This administration is focusing on what they perceive to be the ills of trade, that it's a zero-sum game, that we have a trade deficit, that means we're losing. We're losing because the foreigners cheat and we have to do something about that. And that's, uh, that's, that's bad medicine. So if we're looking ahead a little bit, like I don't, I'm not going to bet any money on who the next president is. Uh, tried that trick a few years ago. <laughs> Did not work. Yeah. We're so, all out of the business now. Yep. Yep. Permanently out of that business. But I guess I don't see... Uh, you know, are any defenders of free trade on the left at the moment, though I'm not sure that they are worse than Trump. Do you sense changes coming? I mean, uh, we're just going to keep going down the road. We're going if Trump is elected again, I guess. Um, 
does he have anything else up his sleeve? But And what do you sense from the Democrats? Do they have anything up their sleeve that's different from what we're seeing? So I, I think the Trump plan is to continue to negotiate bilaterally with, with, with countries. Uh, maybe the UK is next or the Philippines the EU, perhaps that would be a bigger thing, and 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 uh, or Switzerland, perhaps. Uh, I think th this administration wants to use the USMCA as a model for trade agreements going forward, and I don't think that's the right model to use. Um, but they they want to have trade agreements that have sunset provisions in them, so that the outcomes can be reviewed on an annual or a biannual basis, and, and so we can measure how much larger the trade deficit has grown. And, and if it's grown, then we have to tweak the terms so that we can achieve balanced trade. So it, it's, uh, it, it's lunacy. It is, it is policy that is, that is predicated on fallacy that we need to get away from as quickly as possible. I think if any of the Democrats running uh, were to win the presidency, they would maintain the focus on protecting labor uh, they would protect. They would continue to insist on provisions to, that uh, you know protect, ostensibly protect the environment, um, but they would heed to the reality that uh, the objective of trade liberalization or the objective of trade agreements is to to increase trade, to increase exports and imports, and to increase inward investment and outward investment. And when you see that happen as a result of a trade agreement, that's a sign of success. Uh, it's not what the balances are. And so anyway, there's nobody uh, who is politically well-connected uh, or that I, that I see as a possible presidential candidate or leader in the Congress um, who really believes in free trade uh, in the ascendancy right now. So, Isn't part of the trouble is this political conundrum where actually it seems like both parties in some sense, are responding to constituent concerns, the uh, trade-related constituent concerns. And so for people that want freer trade, that's kind of a problem you have to fix somehow. I mean, is it is it a matter of public education? Is it a matter, matter of finding ways to satiate the suffering and concerns of those particular constituents? Is it a matter of just ignoring uh, your, what, how do you get around this? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, part of what explains Trump's rise is sort of a cavalier attitude that uh, the business community and the internationalists among us uh, have had about globalization. That, hey, it's a good thing. Uh, it reduces barriers. It, it raises all boats. That there hasn't been enough emphasis on those who are adversely affected in the short run. And that's that's one of the reasons that Trump came into office and he's trying to pay attention to the people that he thinks have been left behind. One of the problems that we have in our system is that we have Along with trade liberalization, we've usually passed legislation that changes what's called trade adjustment assistance that started in 1962 with Kennedy and the Trade Expansion Act, uh, which is which treats people who lose their jobs because of imports or outsourcing differently than people who lose their jobs because of other reasons, you know, domestic changes, technology changes. The fact is, so few. Uh, job losses are attributable to imports and outsourcing. Far more are attributable to technology changes and technology gains. And so, if if we're going to do something about those left behind, and I think we should think about that. Uh, I don't know the best way to do it. We should not 
treat the causes of job loss any differently um, and just have some broader approach to this because every time we talk about trade in the Congress and trade agreements, we say, well, what are we going to do about those who are hurt by this? It gives trade a bad name and it just reinforces that negative perception and it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, driverless technology is something that in, that we we're told is just around the corner. You know, we have over a million truck drivers in America, and if we have driverless trucks, they're going to lose their jobs, and uh, there's going to be a, you know a massive reduction in, in in the need for for those kinds of workers. So that's not trade; that's technology. What, what do we do about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that's you know we we bemoan here at Cato a lot the fact that there's bipartisan orthodoxy on issue X or issue Y. But sometimes if it's the right orthodoxy, you like it. And in this case, we, I think, benefited for several decades from the bipartisan elite, elite orthodoxy around the you know positive benefits of free trade. But that has clearly started to break down. And whether it's because people aren't taking econ in college anymore in the Ivy Leagues, I don't know. But one of the things that seems clear to me is that the politics of it have clear have really shifted. Yeah. And so one of the disturbing things that you hear like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talking about is the idea that inequality in America is now an argument against free trade right. because globalization has only benefited the top 1% or whatever the notion. And it's just like, wait a minute, can we just stop and do some math, please? Because that's not how it works. No. And yet it sounds, it's truthy yeah. to borrow a phrase, right? Yeah. It sounds right. right. And so people are now pissed. Once again, they're going to break the windows at Starbucks thinking that's the problem somehow. Yeah. And I just don't know how you undo the, John, that was your question. How do you undo the politics that connect wrongly inequality and globalization? Yeah. It's just, I don't know. That's a sticky one. It's, 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 it's a tough row to hoe. Um, but the fact is, and Elizabeth Warren says this all the time, that trade only benefits the rich and trade agreements only benefit big corporations. It's it's the exact opposite. You know, if you look at our trade barriers, our tariffs, around 2% on average, we have tariff peaks on things like clothing, footwear, um, uh, food, and we have trade remedy orders on, 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 on housing. So we have trade remedy orders on things like uh, lumber, cement, steel, flooring, uh, uh, appliances, nails, paint, cabinetry. All of these products, food, clothing, and shelter are made more expensive because of our, 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 our tariff policy. Meanwhile, trade barriers uh, are a much bigger hurdle for smaller companies, the companies that are challenging the, the incumbents who are resting on their laurels. The big companies say, yeah, trade liberalization is good, a trade deal would be good, but if they don't get it, it's not the end of the day for them. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world for them. These smaller companies need this kind of access more than the larger companies. The other thing is people think of trade as a competition between us and them and between two national monoliths as though there's one manufacturing producer interest in the United States and one manufacturing producer interest in China and we have to win. Well, when we impose barriers to protect that protect that big you know national monolith we're hurting the downstream companies that actually rely on on the the, the products that they produce and that w that we import so it's 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 too hard to explain perhaps for for politicians i remember obama and romney instead of explaining the benefits of outsourcing during the debates you know two cycles ago 
just pointed the finger at each other as to who was the bigger outsourcer. Oh, well, you're worse than I am. Rather than explaining it, it's I guess the, their 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 political handlers tell them don't even get into it. So well, and and just on that very point, my father happens to be a, a doctor and and in radiology, and and the rest of the world outsources its radiology services to the United States. We, I think the United States is a bigger benefiter, like dollar-wise, of outsourcing from other countries than we pay other... I mean, it's you're, if we stopped outsourcing, we would lose money. I mean, that just that would be silly. Why would you do this? But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, this, so in other words, we're, we're in a tangled knot. I, are there, is there, can you share some good news? Is there some good news on the horizon that we... Just to leave listeners with a, a pep in their walk. Don't and, be afraid know, to give an honest answer you know, to that question. If it's no, it's no. It's all right. But... You know... Uh, when Trump was elected, I, I said that he was going to be uh, the best salesman for free trade since Adam Smith because he was going to give protectionism a really bad name. And, you know, we have seen people like Joe Stiglitz, Nobel laureate, who actually is a devout protectionist, start to change his perspectives a little bit. Uh, nobody wants to people, not as many people want to be associated with the protectionism that uh, that Trump has given such a bad name. So. I think it's a good thing that, you know, for, I've been here for 19 years and the past three years trade has been topical and now I'm invited to dinner parties and people never wanted to talk to me before because they didn't care about my issue. <laughs> but but now that it's so topical, uh, maybe it's getting newer creative minds thinking about this and better ways to message this and maybe we'll come out of this uh, in, in better shape than we are now. I love it. A positive prediction for the future. Dan, thank you so much. My pleasure, Great Trevor. talking to you. Um, thanks to our producers, Cecil Sherman and Luis Omada Abrigo, and to everyone for listening. To continue the conversation, as usual, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.